Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. I think it's a very normal reaction to have, but I do believe that vengeance eats you up. It turns your your heart to stone, um, and, and it makes you bitter, so you put out a bitter energy in the world as opposed to a positive energy in the world. A mother whose son was murdered works to break the cycle of revenge if perpetrators accept responsibility for doing wrong. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Janet Connors had spent decades doing community service work among inner-city populations in Boston. She was an activist to protect low-income people from having their heat turned off in winter. And she volunteered to drive poor families to visit loved ones who were incarcerated. But in recent years, Connors again found herself traveling to prison, this time to meet with a young man involved in the 2001 murder of her 19-year-old son, Joel, during a home invasion in Boston. Shortly after being released in 2008, the convict, then in his early 30s, agreed to meet Janet at her son's gravesite, where she read him a statement. Your release intensely brings home to me my sadness and grief about the fact that Joel can never come home. I miss him terribly, and I imagine that I always will. As I've said before, it's ironic that because of that, just as intense is my desire for your homecoming to be one that is peaceful, positive, productive, and promising. I wish you no harm. I only wish you well. I wish all of that for you and yours. Because Joel can never come home, It's the only way that you can ever make amends to me. And it's also the only way you can make amends to yourself, your family, and the overlapping communities that you, your mother and father, and I live in. Forgive yourself and accept the gift of forgiveness that I offer to you by being good to yourself and to others. Show up in the world with good intentions and actions. I can imagine that some people hearing those words from a mother whose son was murdered abruptly in the most horrible kind of circumstances would have trouble understanding how you get to a place where you wish this young man well. Yeah, there are people who think I was crazy, (laughs) and some people who still do. Um, But... 
I have worked with children and families all my life. And one question for me um, through all of this was, where did we fail these young people that they could get to a place where they could kill someone else? And I actually asked this of, of one of the young men, the first young man that I met with, the one who's still incarcerated, who's seeing parole soon. And when I asked him that, he said, oh, no, oh, no, don't let me get away with that. He said, there were plenty of times when people stepped in. There were plenty of interventions in my life that I didn't take advantage of. And when he said that, um, I heard his accountability. And that's part of my forgiveness is, is, is expecting this accountability. I expect you to make, to make your life a good life. So it's not forgiveness with no strings attached. No, I, I believe there's a couple of layers to forgiveness. So there's one with no strings attached that's more about a spiritual freeing of self. Um, the one that makes sure that vengeance doesn't eat you up or turn your heart to stone. Um, but there's a more practical layer for, for me too. This is this face-to-face -face practical layer. This is this, you are coming back out into our community if you keep doing dirt then you're hurting our community again. Um, and for me, you might as well kill my son all over again. Um, so for me, that actual looking you in the eye, giving you forgiveness, not just in prayer, separate from you, has some accountability. And that I expect you to lead a good life because God damn it, you have your life and you stole one life. But that's not an excuse for you to continue to raise havoc with your own because when you do that, you raise havoc with so many other people's lives too, in your family and in our community. At the time of Joel's death, the four perpetrators were aged 17 to 22. All were sentenced to prison. Two pleaded guilty to manslaughter, including the young man who was released and met Janet at her son's grave. He's now a father and involved in substance abuse recovery. A third perpetrator was convicted of murder, and the fourth was ultimately sentenced to other crimes. Several of the parents have expressed their apologies to Janet Connors. A boisterous lunch hour at the cafeteria of Charlestown High School near Boston's historic Bunker Hill Monument. Charlestown High is one of several schools where Janet Connors works with young people today to resolve conflicts peaceably and practice forgiveness. A student there, Laurent Bennett, remembers the day Janet told her painful story to an audience at Diploma Plus, a small learning community for kids who've had academic problems housed in the high school. How she can just forgive, like, like what happened. It's just, it's, I, I couldn't do something like that, to be honest with you. Like, Janet's so strong. And the fact that she was able to open up to everybody in the circle and really tell what happened and to be able to, like, trust everybody in the circle, it's just, I find that, like, really, like, like, heartening. It's just, I, like, I love the fact that she was able to do that because I could never open up to anybody and talk about a death of somebody that's so close to me. 
especially if it's like blood and if it's like my son, I could never do that. Like, I really appreciate like what she did because without her, like, I don't think I would even be in school. I think every time she tells her story, students immediately like perk up. They're listening. Betsy Roeder is a guidance counselor. They know someone who's been killed. They know more, many of them more than one person who's been killed. And I think that, you know, her pain really resonates with them. I see, I think that they, for themselves, when they have so much anger, to see someone kind of letting that anger go and channeling it in another way is something that they're not accustomed to seeing on a regular basis. And it's, and it's really eye-opening for them that they say, oh my goodness, here's this person who has lost a son and she's not bitter, she's not angry, she's not going out and getting revenge, she's doing this other thing to, to find that sense of peace. And I think, you know, for a lot of our kids, they need someone to model how to find that sense of peace in a way that's nonviolent. I mean, I think mo all the students have been affected by her story and have found strength in her, you know, ability to move forward. Katie Delahanty teaches English at the high school. It's a counter-narrative to the story that we always hear about, you know, like you said, revenge and, um, and feeling defeated. It's, Janet's not defeated by what's happened to her. She is affecting change in a way that's very profound. And, and even if you read it in literature, it's not the same as hearing it from someone like her who's so full of love and who clearly wants to see things change and, and wants to hold the rest of the world responsible for for going there with her. What is your message to people who undergo tragedy and have trouble coming to terms with it? I guess my message is to come up, see if you can Come up outside of yourself. Janet Connors. Come up from the darkness. Look for the light. Because you believe there always is light available? I do believe there's always light available. Many, many nights I could not sleep in the months that followed my son's death. And I went down to the park, which is a block away here, which is on the edge of the Neponset River Marsh. And... There were mornings during that time of year, which was springtime, when I actually would see the moon move across the marsh and sort of disappear off to my right. And then up in the left, the sun came up and all these birds flew out of the marsh at the same moment. And I would think to myself, this happens every single day even when we don't see it, even when it isn't shining, even when it's hiding behind clouds, this happens every day. Even when we sleep through it. Even when we sleep through it. That's right. Exactly. And every day is a new day. And um, it's a new day that I live without my son and I live with that pain. But it's also a new day where I can experience joy and I can see promise and potential in myself and in other people and I can work towards bringing that about. Janet Connor's quest to help people realize their potential led her to a variety of jobs working with parents and children at the YMCA and at a group in Dorchester, Massachusetts, an inner-city neighborhood where she lives. 
Some of the kids Connors served in daycare centers, she watched turn into troubled youth. I worked with children and families and saw so many young people go in and out of lockup and young people I knew as little ones. I knew their best self, their core self, their good self. And I would see them come back out and be further removed from that. And so when my son was killed, it was, a, it was really a foundational question for me. And my own foundation was, was, was crumbling. I, I, all my beliefs were shaken to their core. Um, <laughs> and I kept thinking, well, what is justice going to mean? And what good is it going to do to lock people up? And not that I don't think they should be locked up or held accountable in some way, but what, what good was that going to do? That's the question that kept going on inside of my heart and soul over and over and over again, was what good was going to come of, of the incarceration of the young people who killed my son? And how was that really going to bring justice to, to my son, to myself, to my family, or to our community? Can you tell us the, the story of your son's death? Mm-hmm. Um, my son was 19 years old. He um, had turned 19 in November. He was killed on January 31st in 2001. He had actually moved out of my home the beginning of November. Um, so he had just moved into an apartment with friends a few months before. And he was working, driving a truck for a thrift store and also working um, at one of the downtown clubs on the 18 um, and overnights. He he and his friends in the apartment, it turns out, were selling weed. I know they didn't think of themselves as drug dealers. I know they thought of themselves as selling weed to their friends. But the four young men... Um, broke into their apartment knowing that they had weed. One of Joel's roommates also, who also drove the truck, had um, hurt himself and um, hurt his back delivering and gone to a doctor and got a prescription for OxyContin. And when he realized what he had in terms of street value, he went and got a double prescription. So the young men who broke into the house um, knew this, so they knew that there would be the Oxycontin, the marijuana, perhaps money, and, and because they were a, a group of young people, also electronic equipment and things to take. These young men, um, they, don't, they didn't know my son. They went on home invasions. This was not their first home invasion. Um, they talked about that in the trial. So that's why they broke into the apartment, and they, they knocked in the downstairs door, and my son and some of his friends were in his room behind the kitchen. Um, and when they heard the commotion, they came out. And um, my son actually refused to lay down. And he was stabbed in his heart. Um, one of the young men involved had an unusual knife collection. So they had a knife and they had um, a pistol and one of my son's friends was pistol whipped and my son was stabbed um and they ran the people who did it ran out of the house um my son's friends 
called 911. They were on the phone with the EMTs trying to um, save him, stuffing towels into his wound. But he, he was stabbed in his heart. And, um, you know, he was only a very few minutes. It was only, I think, I think they said something like 13 minutes from the time of the call to the time my son was arrived at Boston Medical Center. They were only a few minutes away from Boston Medical Center in the apartment they lived, um, but they were not able to save my son. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. talking with Janet Connors, who works in Boston Public Schools teaching conflict resolution and forgiveness to young people following the 2001 tragedy in which her son, age 19, was murdered in a home invasion. It is something that never goes away. Uh, it's there every day. Um, and I guess I have a choice. I, I know I have a choice. I know that I can sort of check out and go crazy. Um, I can slip into a deep funk. I can commit suicide because um, I don't want to live anymore with this pain. Um, or I can try and make some meaning and some purpose out of what happened um, and continue to try and make positive change. So when I look at all those alternatives, I choose the latter. Um, because I really don't like the other alternatives very much. I, you know, people talk about closure and all of that stuff, and I really don't believe that there is closure in, in situations like this. I believe closure is, I think, maybe made up by therapists, promoted by the media and law enforcement. But for those of us who experience this, we have an open wound and we have to take care of that wound. If there isn't closure, is there transformation? I think there is transformation sometimes, yeah. I do believe that there's transformation. Um, or if, I think in my case it was reinforcement. It was sort of reinforcement that, you know, my, my philosophical beliefs were on point, are on point, that my... Um, my idea that our personal experiences are never just our own experiences, that our stories are never just our own stories, that there are other people who share them, um, and that it's always bigger than ourselves, um, and that that's the place to go with it. And a belief in some kind of um, spirituality and faith, I'm not a, a big organized religion kind of Person, but I do believe that there is a divine force and that it's kept going through a collective energy of the, of the things that people do so that we feed that divine force. Um, and 
I wanted to contribute to keeping that force going as opposed to contributing to keeping a force of evil or a force of anger or um, retaliation or revenge going. Janet Connors has now reached out to several of the young men who were involved in the stabbing death of her teenage son. Today, she serves as a fellow at the Suffolk University Center for Restorative Justice, which promotes peaceful approaches to harms done, including dialogue between victims and offenders and truth and reconciliation commissions. It was when Charlestown High School reached out to the Center for Help with Disciplinary Problems that Janet began advising students at the school. I do this work because I believe I am one of the people with a pickaxe um, trying to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, I don't believe in, in restorative justice. Principals don't believe that we can throw out or kick out it, um, anybody, um, that we are all in this world together. And so we hold circles. And I like circles because there are no sides to a circle. I like circles because everybody is included in the circle. And it represents community to me. So circles are used in schools to explore difficult topics like race, class, relationships, homophobia, all of those kinds of things. So the young people and teachers get to know each other in a different way than they do just sitting side by side learning academically. Um, and also we hold the circles in situations of conflict. So if a young person has gotten into a conflict and it's a situation where they may otherwise be suspended, they have the choice to come into circle and all parties involved come to the circle as well as some of the other members of the school community. So if a act of violence or inappropriate behavior was perpetrated, the recipient of that inappropriate behavior is included in the circle. Absolutely, yes. Because very often when something happens, um, all the attention gets focused on the person who caused the harm. And the person who has been harmed receives very little attention, um, and people really don't tend to what their needs are. So restorative practices really are about meeting needs and obligations. So, so everybody is involved because everybody is part of the community, and restorative justice principles also believe that everyone, in spite of infractions, has something positive to contribute to community. So the rest of the school is very much about, um, you know, which rule was broken, who broke it, and, you know, how are they punished for breaking that rule? Or how are they, you know, what's the consequence for breaking that rule? English teacher Katie Delahanty of the Diploma Plus Learning Community within Charlestown High School. And the way that we try to focus on it in our small learning community with the help of Janet is, you know, instead of thinking which rule, rule was broken, we think of it as who was harmed who's responsible for that for creating that harm and what can he or she do to repair that harm and to make it right for the whole community which is a completely different approach to handling discipline issues it really focuses on what what's behind what's the underlying issue with the behaviors or the or the disrespect that that comes up in those behaviors
core principle of restorative justice is a focus on rebuilding relationships that have been damaged by wrongdoing, not merely penalizing the wrongdoer. When young people act out in school, they're encouraged to recognize the network of relationships they're part of. Guidance counselor Betsy Roeder. You know, you're not alone in this and that it's not just about yourself, that there are other people that are impacted by things that you do. And I think sometimes for, for youth, there is this very narrow vision of, you know, it's, it is about me and nobody else. And I think some of that is it's very natural and you know, very developmental. Um, but I think for us to try and have them be aware of, you know, how other people are impacted by what goes on, um, you know, and, and anything that they do, and for them to have this wider world vision is really important, and we can start those, you know, that little piece from um, here. My high is that I got high at the snack bar at work, so I'm making nine something an hour now. Um, my low is that I have to work late tonight, first day, and it's by myself, so I'm kind of nervous because I'm not very good with money. So. The ritual of circle that we have, that students begin to understand what it's about, they're in it continually, consistently over time, even if we're not addressing a particular specific incident in their circle at that time, I think just them being in circle allows them the space to be in a trusting environment where, that they know it's safe, that they know is sacred, so that they can bring an issue to their circle if they choose to. So even if we're you know, sometimes we have our community circles and we do highs and lows. It's just as a com community building, kind of checking in. So students say something that was really positive for the week, something that, you know, they're struggling with or something that's a low for them, or we give shout outs to each other. And that can even be a time where a student would say, you know, and bring up something that's happened over the course of the week, not to have a full circle about it, but to say, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to work, with, work on such and such an issue with this person, and I think they can really feel like they can unmask themselves and be vulnerable um, in a safe way. On the first day of school, the circle format allowed two kids who had previously fought to get past their squabble and to acknowledge the change in a public setting. Student Laurent Bennett watched as one of the kids initiated the reconciliation. He said, "Yo, man, like I just want to squash this. Like, it's like no point. Like, I'm gonna see you every day, and you know, like, like, like we're both trying to graduate. There's no point in trying to have to like, like be so tense in school every day. And like right then, like they both like shook hands, just gave each other a hug, and just like since then, like, like they've been cool. It's just like things aren't as like aggravating. And what circle really does, it like really like relaxes you." gives you a chance to really like focus and be able to like communicate with others to really like socialize and like build a strong relationship with people around you and it's it's a great feeling because you feel like it's family there was a death last year um, from um, Ivo Brown, a really close friend, every, everybody in Diploma Plus. A student at the school. Yeah, he was like he was really popular and everyone loved him. He was a great guy and he had um, got stabbed, and it was just a really emotional time for everybody, especially in DP, because he was in Diploma Plus. Since Diploma Plus is such a small community, everyone was just like really close to each other. And when he had passed, we had a circle, and like it was after Ivo died, and like people brought up like the whole incident, and a lot of um, students started crying, and it was getting really emotional. And that's the first time I've ever seen like circle so like. Like brought together, like everyone in the community was just like so like attached at that moment. It was like it was a good feeling, 
students really like like became close, became like best friends. So a lot of students like found like their best friends and like the closest like peoples here. And it's just like circles a great way to like learn about somebody. Like the best like way to really like get to know like a friend and everything. Laurent Bennett, a student at Diploma Plus, a small learning community at Charlestown High School in Boston. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Sonny Pye of Diploma Plus and to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment with Janet Connors is Humankind Program number 155. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.